Well, good morning, everybody. Well, it's morning for me, not for some of you, I know. Um, but it's, it's great to be back. And um, thinking about this class, uh, which has got a lot of information in it. So um, I apologize in advance for uh, sort of how packed it has to be. But we're talking this week about investigation of the Dharma. So we're turning from this inward uh, experience of our own uh, mindful practice of noticing what's arising in our inner experience and turning our attention to investigation and inquiry of the Dharma. Um, so for the four, past four classes, we've been learning and practicing these concentration techniques and their relational impact particularly our relationship with ourself. And the first class focused on embodied practice, you recall. The second class focused on perceptions. The third class focused on emotions. And last week we introduced comprehensive concentration practice and briefly introduced Zen koans. So I wanted to check in first to see, is there anything you wanna share about your experience practicing with any of these techniques or anything that we discussed last week so far? So if you would um, raise your hand, I can't see everybody. So, um, so if you click on the reactions button and choose raise hand, then I can see that someone's raised their hand. And so if you have any, anything you wanna share about that. What's been happening for you on this practice? I don't think. Um, um. I will, uh, I'll say something. I was doing the, on a, the, the condensed verses mm -hmm. and what was really amazing, especially in one sitting period was how, uh, before I think they've been words mm -hmm. and it went to a completely different place, the body, the heart, the mind. Um, and I awakened kind of an overall summary of them. And um, it was the other day, and then afterwards, I went back to sleep and slept for two hours, which I hardly ever did. But wow. it, it, it had so quieted me or rested me that I was, it, it was a very different experience than I've had before. Uh huh. Uh, it, 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 able to do that, to find my body, to find my heart, to find my mind, and, and going there and resting and doing, doing that action to those so, so, that yeah. was cool. so you were using the four um, phrases at the bottom? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, and it's something you can return to even if you're going about your daily life, you know, they're so short. I was doing it when I was driving too. Yeah, 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 it's, um, it's, it's very, it's a very uh, portable practice. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So people can unmute themselves when they're ready to talk. Good. I won't do it. Okay. All right. Um, oh, Ellen. Um, well, I just thought I ought to speak up because I've been doing this for a while, actually, this, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I just love it because uh, you can't always just sit down and be you know, sometimes, uh, I mean, it's fine to have a thought come up and here and there, but sometimes if it's just a constant barrage 
uh, it's really nice to uh, have something that that can get you really centered and mm -hmm. get the mind quiet enough. It, it, it never will be completely quiet, but get it quiet enough to uh, to really uh, kind of uh, well, just to get get deeper, uh, get deep, go deeper and longer uh, into meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it drops you into a different place, I think. Um, uh, and so I know lots of um, Zen teachers who start out their own personal meditation practice with going through the, the Anapanasati steps. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it does just sort of bring you right into this present moment. Well, it's kind of in interesting to me to know that th that is acceptable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I do, I do find it extremely useful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can do it a whole sitting period at the start of an intensive, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and settle yourself down or the, the first period of the morning, settle yourself down a little bit. Mm -hmm. so that you can really be present. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And you, so you have experience with doing this for a while and it's now an established practice and not just something uh, novel to try out. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's very helpful, I think. And it's, it's very easy to uh, assimilate. Yeah. I think you can learn it quite quickly. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. <laughs> oh, Jay. Um, morning, everyone. So what I have found for me is that doing the, this course has made me more um, mindful and aware, you know, um, to tune into myself, like what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, even questioning what I'm perceiving, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, and I asked myself, like, if I didn't have, <laughs> if I didn't have these words, what would this experience be, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, really, it's just like, I feel like I'm experiencing life anew, like in a whole new way, because I'm, questioning everything <laughs> like you know what I mean like even this morning <laughs> my window is right here and I'm looking at this sky and I'm actually seeing the clouds moving and you know uh, and I start thinking oh my god isn't it a marvel a marvel how we're living on a spinning planet and like <laughs> it's like I went on this rabbit hole you know and then I start thinking I'm feeling awe, I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling amazement, you know, and I'm, it's like all these things I just start, I f honestly, I feel like a kid, you know, and I, I start thinking, is this how a, a child feel, a baby feels, you know, yeah. seeing yeah. everything, so yeah, this whole thing has just um, had me experience like differently, so. Yeah. That's great, yeah, that's, that's, um, I think such a wonderful, refreshing experience then, right? Yeah. yeah, that's great. Oh, it's great to have these reports because I love to hear how people are taking out these practices and what they're discovering. So thanks for the, sharing that. <laughs> Maria. Hi, um, 
<coughs> oh dear, frog in my throat. Um, yeah, uh, I've been practicing with the um, the breathing, um, the body awareness, and the uh, the gladness and the the joy. You know, the meditation things. I've been going through them, and I found it really interesting to sort of actively do that and actively, you know, intentionally breathing joy, you know, breathing calming mind activity, you know, whole body and it, the whole body. And what I noticed while I was doing it was I was I could feel the the effects of the meditation but also the shadow of where i was just before and the, the and the the kind of the the kind of my body going towards that and then having to bring it back again the attachment to well i mean before i mean i've had a lot of anxiety this week there's just a lot going on around me right now and um just noticing the kind of the attachment to that and how good I do anxiety. I do it really well. You know, I, I've well, got a lot of thoughts and ideas. Yeah, I've got a lot of ideas and thoughts and all sorts, like a whole system of thinking and bodily sensations around anxiety. So really interesting, just noticing that shadow of it there while I'm here and, mm -hmm. and kind of, um, but staying here, but mm -hmm. really still feeling it and aware of it, the shadows and echoes are very strong and then i thought you know i was doing the whole body awareness thing and then meditation and then uh, and i thought i wasn't aware of my foot and i thought if i'm not aware of my foot what else am i not aware of what other subconscious goings-ons are kind of working in the background that i'm not aware of and uh, and i found that really interesting and then i was thinking about your koan at the end you about the what is your world you know what you know, what, what do I call the world? And I was thinking my world used to be so huge and I'd get so, and, and it was too big and it was overwhelming. My idea of mm -hmm. what I had to do and what I need to sort out. And, and it was only through bringing back my world into practicalities. What can I do in my immediate surroundings to make a difference or to help or to create less suffering? And it was only when I narrowed it in that I stopped getting that overwhelm in my twenties. I was so overwhelmed because I had to fix the world, you know, and it, yeah. you know, and it was down to me and I had to sort things out, you know, <laughs> wow. and now I, I have to realize that, you know, my world is what I can affect in my world. And that's far reaching, you know, that, that, that goes, goes. And, and, and like my niece the other day said, you know, she was sat with her, two brothers in a really anxious, difficult situation. And she said, I just brought you up, Maria, to mind. I just thought of you and I thought, what would Maria do? What would Auntie Moo Moo do, as she calls me? She calls me Moo Moo. And, uh, and she just said, I just became really calm and I knew what to do. And I thought, how wonderful that what we do gets taken forward and what I've received gets brought through me and into another. And you know, our world doesn't have to be massive, but it can still have a wonderful impact on, on those people, you know, near yeah. us. And, yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah, it permeates out from us everywhere. It just radiates out. We don't know where it goes. We, we're, not, we're not the agent of that, right? Yeah, and we're all connected, aren't we? I mean, it's even like when I was in my mother's, um, when my mother was carrying me, she was carrying a bit of Katie. Yeah, that's right. Because it's like we, we have all the cells, don't we? And then when we have a child, we, we continue to carry a lot of cells of, of the child. And, and so whether we've been a whether whether baby or the mother, we're carrying something of another all the time. You yeah. know, and I find that so, you know, yeah. 
so interesting how we are so physically connected as well as everything else you know yeah. in other ways yeah emotionally and psychologically and yeah mm -hmm. and in this um and in this uh fabric of spirit that we're connected to right mm. yeah that's wonderful <laughs> many yeah i uh, have been really happy and interested in my being able to be moment to moment or momentarily getting into awareness and then being like a witness and sep the separation and between me or self and others and the interaction and the play in between and just the joy of you know this being able to just be with it and uh, with all the other conditioning issues that i have had and i have and and being able to, you know, be in this reality, whatever is this moment. So I have had more and more of that. And even in meetings, you know, like gatherings, like, you know, last night with good, good friends. Uh, so, you know, I, I, it, it's just a joy. I, I, it seems, you know, I am, whatever I'm doing is getting me to a good place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's what the, uh, even the scientific research shows about mindfulness practices that bring us into present moment awareness, bring joy. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, and so I'll say in passing, I've been reading a book called Peak Mind, um, which is by a wonderful Indian woman, researcher, neurophysiologist who uh, does research on attention. And since in meditation, we're constantly uh, refining and developing our capacity to pay attention, I was very interested in what she was learning from the scientific side of the study of attention. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and, uh, and she talks about her own experience as well and the difficulties of maintaining attention in the kind of world we're in and with the kinds of competing demands that we have and all of the ways that we try to manage that fail. Um, so, uh, so I was very interested to read about what she, uh, what she learned about what works and it's basic mindfulness practice. They used, they tried everything. I mean, they tried every single thing you can imagine for training attention. And the only thing that worked was mindfulness practice. And, they, and she's uh, broadly um, studied this across the military, across uh, just all kinds of large populations. Um, and it's quite an interesting book because she's talking about what she learned um, in this study of attention. And um, so in any event, uh, uh, that's been, uh, I've been really enjoying reading it. And she has some little simple practices. They're like 12 minutes each um, at the end uh, that people can do to actually train. She says like, this is like push-ups for the, for the um, attention faculty. Uh, so, so anyway, today we wanna to turn our attention to an often overlooked meditation practice taught by the Buddha, investigation of dhammas. 
So I'm drawing today pretty heavily on uh, Analyo's wonderful guide to the Satipatthana Sutta, um, Satipatthana, the direct path to realization. He's written about three books about the Satipatthana Sutta. He's the, probably the world's expert on it. But there are some very surprising things in this book um, that I wouldn't have, uh, I just wouldn't have any idea of. Um, so in any event, um, this particular Satipatthana, the Satipatthana of investigation of dharmas is the subject of five chapters. So obviously it's pretty important. Uh, and we won't be able to cover the whole territory. You could do probably a couple of years of just studying this book. Um, I only hope that once we introduce this practice to you, you'll continue to explore it. So I'll um, take up the, these traditional teachings, the Buddhist traditional teachings in the Pali Canon on investigation, and then we'll, um, then we'll return to koans as a special case of investigation that was developed in the Zen tradition. So what do we mean by investigation of dharmas? Our, our Buddhist tradition is not based on beliefs or origin stories or paranormal mystical experiences. It's an empirical practice in which we engage in inquiry to examine the teachings and their truthfulness based on our own experience, intelligence, and study. So there's a sequence to the concentration practices taught in the Satipatthana and Anapanasati suttas, which is a kind of curriculum of the Buddha's instructions for meditation. It's a mode of inquiry. So we take up our practice of investigation of the dharmas once our bodies are calm, our mental activity has settled down, and we've accessed the mind, which has become concentrated, bright, lucid and unperturbed. So we undertake this inquiry to establish our own relationship with the teachings that are conducive to wisdom, compassion, and happiness taught by the Buddha. And this is so helpful, um, what the kinds of explanations that Analyo provides. He says the word investigation in these Pali canon teachings, vikaya, is derived from the verb whose range of meaning includes both investigating and discriminating. Thus, investigation of dhammas can be understood as an investigation of subjective experience based on the discrimination gained through familiarity with the dharma. Such discrimination refers in particular to the ability to distinguish what is wholesome or skillful for progress on the path and what is unwholesome or unskillful. So there isn't a concept in Buddhist teachings of um, good and evil, um, or sinners and saved, there's what's wholesome and skillful and what's unwholesome and unskillful. So what this Satipatthana is actually concerned with are specific qualities, such as the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors we'll talk about in a minute, and analyses of experience into specific categories, such as the five aggregates, the six sense spheres, and the four noble truths. These mental factors and categories constitute central aspects of the Buddha's way of teaching, the Dhamma. These classificatory schemes are not in themselves the objects of meditation, but constitute frameworks or points of reference to be applied during contemplation. Now, I thought this was really interesting. During actual practice, one is to look at whatever's experienced in terms of these Dhammas, Thus, the dhammas mentioned in this Satipatthana are not mental objects, but are applied to whatever becomes an object of the mind or of any other sense door during contemplation. So these um, qualities or factors 
our ways of looking at our experience or lenses for understanding our experience as it's arising. So this is from uh, Analia. So in other words, when thoughts, feelings, or sensations arise in the mind, investigate whether one of these uh, contemplations is present. There's no need to be agitated about it. We're just investigating mindfully the appearance of these things. So consequently, we want to establish mindfulness as our introduction to investigation. So once we're settled and still, and our mind is reasonably clear, we can take up, for example, the contemplation of the five hindrances. This is the first of the contemplations of the Dhammas. And they are sensual desire, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor, and restlessness and worry and doubt. So the Buddha's teachings are, if sensual desire is present in you, you know there is sensual desire present in me. If sensual desire is not present in you, you know there's no sensual desire in me. And you know how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented, and so on with each of the hindrances. So you know it's present, you know it's not present, you know how, um, if it's not present, you can bring it forth. So, um, so maybe you're not hungry, but you could think about a nice meal that you would like to have. Um, and then you can, uh, you can create that sensual desire, right? So you know how it can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed. So we've all had the experiences of recognizing that we're hungry, but then we get caught in something that we're uh, interested in and we forget all about it, right? Um, and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. So if I don't wanna think about food, what, you know, I, I, I have to have a plan for what I'm gonna think about other things, right? So it's so on with each of the hindrances. So I like um, Analio saying the use of the term hindrance clearly indicates why these mental qualities have been singled out for special attention. They hinder the proper functioning of the mind. Under the influences of the hindrances, one is unable to understand one's own good or that of others, or to gain concentration or insight. Learning to withstand the impact of a hindrance with awareness is therefore an important skill for one's progress on the path. According to the discourses, difficulties in counterbalancing a hindrance are a good reason for approaching an experienced meditator or a teacher to ask for practical guidance. So if you're having trouble with ill will um, and uh, turning your awareness toward it doesn't seem to be helping to resolve it, then you can, um, you, you, you'd be wise to consult with someone who can give you some support around that. So hopefully that makes sense. So what I wanted to do is a little short practice with this where we'll just do about three minutes of um, your regular contemplation practice and notice, just notice if in that practice, as things come to mind, you experience any of these five hindrances, sensual desires, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness or worry, and doubt. So um, don't contemplate the hindrances. Don't sit there and wonder about sensual desire. Notice when they're attached to some experience, thought or sensation you're having. Okay, so let's, let's try this for just a little bit.
So this is something uh, I'll sometimes do right at the start of a meditation period also is check for presence of hindrances. But what did you notice when you did this little investigation? Leslie. Hi, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> My internet's been kind of wonky. Um, so I have really been struggling with this uh, over the last few weeks because my normal meditation practices, especially is since before the weather turned colder, is to go outside with my cup of tea and um, in nature, you know, look at the, watch the trees and, and meditate. And um, my next one of my next door neighbors is remodeling their house. Ooh. And so for the last couple months, it's been... Um, jackhammers, hammers. Right now, as we speak, they're replacing the cabinets in the in the bathroom right next to me. And then neighbors on my other side have some medical issues, and so they've been smoking marijuana um, for the last six months out on their deck. And I don't have a problem with that, but what I do have a problem with is I can't go out on my patio now without smelling it. And so I spend my entire meditation, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm I'm complaining here and whining, but this is so, so appropriate because I've been really struggling because I spend my whole meditation trying to not have ill will. I think that was one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> not have ill will while I'm trying to, I'm, I'm doing these loving kindness meta meditations out of my deck and I can't get into it. And so it's just been a real struggle. So if there's any way you can, y'all can help me with that, I would really appreciate it. We wouldn't advise you to suppress the ill will. It's just noticing it arising. Okay. And in noticing it arising, notice where it's located in your body, right? And that um, sense that this is unpleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, notice, um, it, does it change as you're observing it? Mm -hmm. Does anything about it change? Um, and so in other words, we're studying, how do I do this? How do I do this aversion? How do I do? And, um, and then I have thoughts, of course, you know, this is so annoying. How can I meditate? You know, um, we were in working with people who are in prison, they're often subject to a lot of noise, you know, and so they're trying to block out the noise, never very successful. And then you're engaged in this kind of violent effort. Um, mm -hmm. Meditation isn't about violent effort. So we asked them to make the noise the subject of their meditation. So they would just allow themselves to turn their awareness to the noise instead of trying to block it out or suppress it. Um, so when we do that, we, we notice a changing landscape. There's ch a changing landscape that unfolds as a result of that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you have um, all kinds of uh, sense experiences Right, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, in a little in a little bit when we talk about the contemplation of the five aggregates, right? The six aggregates, really, but the contemplation of the aggregates. Then we know there's an there's an inside sense organ, there's an outside stimulus of some kind, and then there's the consciousness that arises from the meeting of them, mm -hmm. right? And so that um, itself can be a source of clinging, right? 
Um, we get bound up in our thoughts about this. How long is this going to go on? This is, you know, really annoying. It's so disturbing. How can I meditate? You know, and, and so basically what we're practicing then is agitation, right? Restlessness and worry and, um, and doubt, you know, how can my meditation be any good if it can't see me through this experience, right? So, uh, so that to turn the contemplation toward that and to, and to study, you know, um, uh, the way that we manage it, how do we deal with it? Um, and the, um, what we think it means about ourself, you know, the construction of a self that arises out of that, right? So you put yourself in the scene and here are all these things that are uh, sources of dissatisfaction, the basic, the basic dukkha, right? Um, and then, uh, so, and, and I can see that my clinging is to, I wish this wasn't happening, right? Mm -hmm. I wish something, you know, I wish I had my peace and quiet back, uh, you know. So we can see that that attachment amplifies the suffering. And, um, and, and then we can make a decision like, I know this is going to be going on for a while. So how long do I want to be disturbed by it? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and what, uh, how do I want to meet it with my awareness? Right. So it's not really about uh, fending off or trying to suppress your own feelings about it, but this, this, oh, I'm meeting it this way. Oh, ill will is arising. Oh, restlessness and worry is arising. Oh, you know, now I feel dull about it. You know, like, um, and you'll just run through the whole list sometimes, right? Um, yeah, my sensual desire is for the, my senses not to be impacted in these ways. Right? <laughs> yeah, so it's like the, you, you get the whole catalog. <laughs> yeah. And so the experience is just the experience, noise, aroma, you know, it's just the experience. Um, and then we watch, what do we do with that experience? How are we meeting that experience? Oh, we're doing this. Oh, I feel it in my body, I feel it in my gut. You know, I feel my jaw getting tight. I wanna say something, but I'm not gonna say something. My throat's getting constricted, you know? Um, and, and so we, and so I'm just like, this is how I do this, right? We're just studying it. We're not, this isn't a wrong way or a right way to, to meet it. It's just like, oh, this is how I meet it. I see this is my conditioning looks like this. And it works in this way. And it reinforces a sense of self, me, the one who's the victim of all of this, or me, the one who has to practice with all of this, or me, the heroic overcomer of all this, you know, like, um, we, we, but it's all self-meeting, right? So that's kind of how we, um, how we can study what our experience is showing us about ourselves, right? I don't know if that will help you or not. It does. So I will look at, yeah, I, I think it, it really does. Cause rather looking at, I mean, the, the first, the first phrase of, you know, caught in the self-centered dream keeps coming up <laughs> because, because it's, it's obviously all my self-centered stuff, but I will, yeah. So I'll look at it more from a different point of view and focus on it. So yeah. 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 I, and I, I often um, invoke Joko's um, little framing of, well, how should it be? Well, everything should be peaceful and quiet, like I want it to be. And you know, then and how is it really noisy? <laughs> you know, so how should it be? We have a pretty good idea how it should be. <laughs> and then how is it really? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a advanced practice is how I explain it to people. Now you're in advanced practice. <laughs> okay. All right.
Medi. Uh, I, thinking today, I have been, you know, for some time in this past year and so quite worried about, you know, whether I am making progress, whether I'm capable of, you know, doing this practice. And uh, I think most recently I have been able to sort of calm down, stay back and just accept whatever it is in my life and just take it from there and just get back to awareness of what is going on within myself and my you know, person, my character and all of that. So, you know, there is a, some kind of a, you know, I, I am resilient, I don't give up and there is a more confidence actually. And I'm just becoming a more uh, that it's, it works. <laughs> you just have to. <laughs> Well, it's um, in terms of whether people have the capacity to do it, if they can bring their body into stillness mm -hmm. and if they can allow themselves to have silence, they could do this practice because that's all that's really involved. That's all that's required. And you can be sitting, standing, lying down or walking, um, but it's that capacity to come into present moment experience and be quiet um, and then just study like you're like you're in a forest Just study what's happening around you and in you. There's nothing um, complex about it. Yeah. I'm making it more complicated because I'm introducing all of these contemplations. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I get into overthinking actually, you know, yeah. just, I get lost. I get yeah. like a wallowing, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just bring it back to the simplicity of sitting. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Maria. I was just thinking about when you said about ill will and, and feelings and and I think what well, I mean I know exactly where I feel it in my body I get like a burning in the center of my stomach and it can cause me quite a lot of um, physical issues if you like you know with digestion and things and you know but I think for me it's I have to remember just because it hurts doesn't mean it's wrong and it and it, it's kind of like you know I, I can get really hurt by I mean I'm in a situation at the moment where people are wanting me to do all these different tasks and jobs and things not Appamada it's a completely different thing <laughs> and it, nothing to do with it. but then they I enjoy all this I love this so this is <laughs> but but it's kind of like I so I'm in the background doing all the jobs and the wanting all the the advice and everything and all this kind of stuff and then the let everyone know they're doing it. And there's something about that that kind of does something to me. It kind of creates a little twist in my stomach and uncomfortableness. And then I think, well, you know, I, I need to look at this differently. I need to do something different with this because, you know, like to get to that point where it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing on the outside, my candle flame stays still in the center of me and nothing blows it around. And it's kind of like, but it, it does. And then I feel like, oh gosh, you know, this shouldn't be doing this to me. This shouldn't be blowing me around like this. I should be okay by now with people that, you know, I think it, it's kind of, it's when people like want me to be invisible, but they want me to do everything. Right, right, yeah. And then they take the credit for it. And it's like, well, I shouldn't be bothered about having the credit for anything. That's an ego thing. I shouldn't mind that. Why is, why is that kind of bothering me? in the way it is but it happens again 
and again and again every every year twice a year, it happens you know each time and it's kind of and it's kind of, but I make it my problem completely it's like because it is isn't it it's something I'm doing with that can well, I or is it well, because you're the one who's suffering and you're suffering because of a certain attachment to the way things should be mm. and they are what they are um, you have to decide for yourself you're going to do what's asked of you or not do what's asked of you and not care about the outcome of it. Um, but still, nobody is immune to these feelings that arise. Um, it's just knowing how to practice with them. Oh, having that feeling. Oh, having ill will arise, you know, like it's knowing that it's present, um, knowing how we can make it arise. And we think about this over and over and over again, you know. Um, yeah, notice. it's the thoughts, isn't it, that get attached to it all. And, and then you start thinking, oh, gosh, you know, well, I, I, why am I doing this? And then I think, no, Maria, you know, you're doing it because you love what you're doing and you're doing it for the sake of everybody else. And, you know, I have these conversations with me, but it's always like these two people that kind of, yeah. it, it's more when somebody kind of steps forward and says, oh, yes, that was me that did all that. And it does something and it, and it shouldn't, should it? It's like. I should be above and beyond that. You well, know. <laughs> you're having a lot of problems with the shoulds, you know. <laughs> yeah, I need to take that out of my vocabulary, Don. <laughs> you need to look at the koan of Hakuin and the baby. Do you know that koan? Is that when he goes up the mountain with the baby and he says, is that so? Yeah. You got yeah. my daughter pregnant. And yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. I've been thinking about him and I'm thinking I want to be him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be that guy. Oh, look how free he was, right? Look how free he was. Because it doesn't matter, does it? In the whole scheme of things, it doesn't matter who thinks what or why or what. It doesn't matter. It, but it's I've got a real thing about being misrepresented, and I know it comes from my mother and but from I think, being young. I think a lot of people have that um, that sense, and of course, it's bound up in how I see myself and how I want others to see me, right? So, so that means we're not really doing things out of a motive of generosity because there's still a hook in it, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's what I keep I keep an eye on that because it's, <laughs> that's, that's not what it's all about, is it? It's kind of you're doing it out of generosity. It's that you know, and that's the hook. But it's when people step forward and actively say, "I I did all that. This is all. This is what I've done," and you've spent like two, three days sorting it all out. So, and so, and so your practice is, are you able to say, oh, is that so? That's what I want. That's where I want to be. And that, that's what's needed, isn't it? And the energy I would save, you save it in your body, don't you? Because you don't have those reactions and, right. and responses to it. Because it doesn't matter. It, it, but it's hooking into a younger self, isn't it? A younger self right. that was invisible. Right. And that yeah. wasn't seen. That's right. And so then you have to be the one that sees it. You have to be the one that has satisfaction in the activity, not in the recognition that comes with it. So it's difficult because we all want to be special. Everybody wants to be special and they want to be seen as special. And then you realize, oh, everybody is special. I'm special just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so then it's like the guilt and the, the self turning on yourself for having those feelings. Yeah, you know that that happens. Like, oh gosh, you know right. that's the like whole, feeling like a horrible person. Whole thought system. This is a whole thought system that you know predictably gets rolling, right? And it's got a pattern, and that's mm. the pattern, right? Now I'm a bad person um, because mm. I care about these things and I shouldn't, and 
yet I do, right? <laughs> and everybody has this, you know, it's just, we, had, we know how to practice with it and not like spay it all, spray it all over everybody else, right? But you can also see that they have it worse than you and need it more. That's right. And that's what kind of holds me. Like, I know they need it more than me. They need to have that credit or that they need it. There's something where they, they have to do that. This it comes from a sense of lack. So, yeah. 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 So it's kind of like, let them have it because you can see in them, you can see it. You can see that. You can see the redness. You can see they need it. Yeah. You know, and then, after, and then it's kind of having compassion for that and where they're up to. Right. With that and compassion for myself for kind of having a niggle with it. <laughs> it's a small thing. It's not winning a Nobel Prize. You know, it's it's getting credit for some small thing, right? Um, so it's not discovering the cure for cancer or, uh, you know, yeah. So so that's that's a really good recognition. Mm. So anyway, I know there are other questions, but we probably need to move along so we don't uh, get too too delayed here. But hang on to your questions and, uh, and we'll see if we have time for them a little bit later. <clears throat> because the next contemplation is the contemplation of the five aggregates. And these are what the Buddha famously taught are entirely what we're composed of. There's nothing else. So, um, so in this teaching, he teaches, you know, such as material form, some body, right? Um, or a table, um, such it's arising, such as passing away. So this form arises, this form passes away. It's true of every single form. Such as feeling, we already covered that, right? <clears throat> Positive, negative, and neutral. Such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. Such as cognition, such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. Um, such are volitions, such are their arising, such are their passing away. And such is consciousness, such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. These things all support each other in forming who we are. Um, as he said, you know, like sheaves of wheat that form a stook in the middle of a field. Um, but if you took them all away, there's nothing else there. So, um, so you see that there's two steps there, clear awareness of the aggregate, form, sensation, volition, whatever, um, followed by awareness of its arising and passing away. All of the Buddha's teachings, all of them are about this, about dependent origination, arising and passing away. So, so this contributes to the dissolution of a solid sense of self when we do these contemplations on the five aggregates. Um, and, um, and you, you're, you're looking for, is there anything else there that I can identify? Um, so then there's, uh, next is the contemplation of the sense spheres. And I'll give you the um, Buddha's description of this from um, Anelio's um, quoting of it. Um, so he's talking to about the, the um, practitioners. He knows the eye. He knows forms and he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. So <clears throat> what this is the consciousness, the awareness that you have a sense organ 
and then a stimulus of some kind, and then the consciousness that arises in the contact between them, which we call vision. So if you don't have a sense organ, you're not gonna have vision. If there's not something to see, you're not gonna have vision. So, uh, so this is true for the, uh, all of the senses. Uh, one's experience of the world, Analeo says, is the product of an interaction between the subjective influence exercised by how one perceives the world and the objective influence exercised by the various phenomena of the external world. So you'll sometimes see this uh, schema, um, eye and ear, right? Nose and smell, taste and touch. Um, so that we, um, I, you know, eye and form, uh, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and touch or um, skin and touch sometimes. And then mind, mind is considered a sense organ in Buddhism. So we're aware not only of this quality of seeing, but also the, the way that sensory experience arises and passes away. Again, like all everything conditioned, all conditioned phenomena, it's impermanent. So then the Buddha moves on to teaching the um, awakening factors, uh, factors of awakening. Um, and there are seven factors of awakening. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give you this part of it. Um, contemplating the awakening factors, if the mindfulness fa awakening factor is present, he knows there is the mindfulness awakening factor in me. If the mindfulness awakening factor is not present in him, he knows there is no mindfulness awakening factor in me. I'm distracted, I'm glued to my screens. Um, he knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen mindfulness awakening factor can be perfected by development. So here we're talking about not just the contemplation of the awakening factors, but how they can be cultivated. Um, so these factors are the mindfulness factor, the investigation of Dhamma's factor, <clears throat> the energy factor, the joy factor, the tranquility factor, the concentration factor, and the equanimity factor. And these are considered to arise sequentially. So in the beginning, we um, cultivate mindfulness. And then we cultivate, in being mindful, we cultivate the investigation of Dhamma's factor. And then that investigation of Dhamma's factor helps us cultivate energy, we have bring energy to our practice. Um, and then that energy and that mindfulness, as Medina was talking about, um, then evokes the joy factor of awakening. And it's wonderful to me that joy is a factor in awakening. Um, and that then um, becomes established in tranquility. And that tranquility allows our energy to be concentrated and whole, and that leads to equanimity. So these seven factors are um, considered to be the necessary factors for awakening, but they also unfold from each other. So the next contemplation is the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths, um, which um, Analeo managed to really surprise me about this. So the way this is, the Buddha describes this is, he knows as it really is, this is dukkha. He knows as it really is, this is the arising of dukkha. 
He knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. And he knows as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So traditionally it's taught that dukkha is um, suffering or dissatisfaction. Um, and um, the Buddha, so Analyo disagrees with this interpretation altogether. Um, he's, the Buddha said, the realization of the four noble truths will be accompanied by happiness. And the noble eightfold path is a path productive of joy. So this shows that understanding dukkha is not necessarily a matter of frustration and despair, as it would be if you believed that the Buddha taught that all is suffering. So he talks about, Analyo talks about the need for careful translation of the term. So he demonstrates it with the help of a passage, another passage from the Pali Canon in the Nidaya Samutta, where the Buddha stated that whatever is felt is included within dukkha. This was really quite startling news to me. Um, to understand dukkha here as an affective quality and to take it as implying that all feelings are suffering conflicts with the Buddha's analysis of feelings into three mutually exclusive types, which are in addition to unpleasant feeling, pleasant and neutral feelings. So we, we studied this when we studied feelings, right? So on another occasion, the Buddha explained his earlier statement that whatever is felt is included within dukkha to refer to the impermanent nature of all conditioned phenomena. The changing nature of feelings, however, need not necessarily be experienced as suffering. Since in the case of a painful experience, for example, change may be experienced as pleasant. Thus, all feelings are not suffering, nor is there impermanent suffering, since none of them can provide lasting satisfaction. This is dukkha as a qualification of all conditioned phenomena is not necessarily experienced as suffering since suffering requires someone sufficiently attached in order to suffer. Way to bury the lead, Analeo. That should be the front of the book um, because so much has been misunderstood about this term and about the nature of dukkha, the, uh, um, the arising of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. This is entirely different. He's really talking about these conditioned phenomena. We have feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in association with them. They're continuously changing. We know um, then our task is to comprehend dukkha, that is that we're having these experiences, um, to, to contemplate the arising of those felt senses of those experiences and they're passing away, the cessation of that. And there's actually a way that leads to the cessation. So this eightfold path. So this was really startling to me because um, we've always uh, taught um, dukkha as uh, struggle, trouble, stress, suffering, um, and dissatisfaction. Uh, and there's no real good translation. The way we have talked about it is that it ranges from mild annoyance to full-blown homicidal fury or total uh, death by, you know, painful cancer or, you know, like that all of that is included in dukkha, but actually it's all, all experience, all feeling about what we're experiencing is the subject of dukkha. 
So that um, was startling to me when I read this in Enolio. Uh, and, and every time I encounter it, because this is now the third or fourth time that I've read it, I'm like, oh yeah, that is a novel way of understanding this, but it's actually the way the Buddha was speaking about it. So our investigations range widely in this practice. That's the, those are the contemplations on, the, um, uh, on these various factors on the dhammas. So uh, we have the, uh, these investigations that range widely, but in order to consider them meditation, we need to take them up with intention and curiosity and mindfulness. Um, we need to be able to sustain our attention on them and to examine our own experience with some courage and readiness to observe without judging, without getting caught up in our own stories and without self-identifications. And that's why I consider this an empirical practice. It's scientific, not from forming and testing hypotheses, but observational science as when studying a frog pond or migration patterns of birds or the deep communication between trees. Because in understanding how these conditioned um, uh, reactions and responses to our experience arise in us, we, we will automatically develop some sense of how they arise differently in other people and will necessarily um, develop a higher degree of appreciation for how these uh, conditioned patterns get created in ourselves and in others. So it builds empathy, uh, this kind of investigation. Okay, does that, uh, now, any lingering questions or uh, reflections from that um, blitz tour of the, uh, the other aggregates? Kim. So does a suffering come from not uh, investigating the hindrance in a sense? Is that well, what he's saying? Our suffering. It's not the hindrance itself that's the suffering. No, it's our attachments. Our attachments are the sources um, because our attachments attempt to make permanent what's impermanent, attempt to make solid what isn't solid, um, attempt to preserve something that can't be preserved because we don't understand arising and passing away. So um, that's the real, to me, that's the real struggle. Uh, we want to make the good things last, or we want to attach to those, or the good feelings, or the good experiences, and we want to get rid of the ones we don't want. And um, and neutral, you know, is sort of semi-bad in a way because nothing's happening, so people try to make something happen either on the positive side or on the negative side, uh, because it's uh, it seems um, boring. <laughs> so. Yeah, so the suffering is really in the ways that we are attached and clinging to what we want. Now that's, that's a little tricky because sometimes what we actually want, um, it, it, it seems like there's something wrong with that. Like, why would you want something that causes pain? So as Maria was talking about the shadow side, you know, why would that be attractive to you? Why would you have a magnetic pull towards that negativity um, or towards more suffering. And it's perfectly obvious in your observations that people do have attachment or attraction to that which causes suffering. So part of it is um, what feels familiar to them. 
so if they've been accustomed to a lot of suffering, when they move into an arena where they're not suffering quite so much, it feels false. It actually feels false or like um, any minute it's gonna disappear or uh, we're gonna make some mistake and it's, and it's gonna be even worse. Everything's gonna be even worse. Um, so, so there's that um, quality to, that makes our own suffering attractive. And um, you know, um, uh, Shanti Davis said, we hate suffering, but we love the causes of it. And to me, that's the most telling thing because uh, we end up attaching ourselves to that which will reliably and predictably cause suffering. And, uh, and it, it's that appeal as uh, uh, Maria was talking about the shadow. Okay, so I want to ask it a little bit differently. So the hindrance that, that immediately came up for me when we did our meditation was, and then I, I instantly recognized I've done this my whole life, is being impatient, waiting for someone's response. Because I want to get things done right now. And, and I saw that and I saw that I was waiting and, and this, the, the, this has been my whole life waiting for someone to respond. Yeah, yeah, you can. Um, okay, so so then how, uh, so what I'm suffering at is, is the expectation that they should respond instantly. Right. And, um, and not recognizing that, uh, that this is an expectation of mine. Yeah, it's clinging to something. I'm clinging to this idea of how people should be. You're not um, alone in that. Uh, so I guess like the other things that the thoughts that go through our head, it's just, just uh, recognizing that this is what's happening. Yeah. That, exactly. That's as far as I can go. I'm not going to uh, change the world. Well, your you're, um, work then is to say, well, how is it really? This person is taking their time. Or I say reframing in a sense. You can do that. <clears throat> say, but how is it really? It's taking time. Or they have other things in their life going on. That's telling a story. So it's what's actually happening. Yeah, you see how fast we spin a story out of it, right? And that's not a story to say they're taking their time. Well, it's, you know, it's taking time, whatever. Yeah, no, that's not a story. That's what's actually happening. What's actually happening? Oh, uh, time is passing. Time is passing, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jay. Yeah, I want to say, um, the thing is, though, right, we are coded like the world we live in it's coded into us to be attached right of course like if you right exactly so and, and then it's a constant coding even when you are aware so the work is always being done you always have to do the work because it's in the movies the songs we listen you know every little thing says be attached and do everything you can to keep attached, you know, to that and not be in flow, you know? Um, so it's that constant work. And I, I just want to say something um, regarding Maria and the work um, and not getting credit. And for me, 
I have been in that situation. And, you know, initially I, I would, I would feel my body tense. I'll be angry. And instead I, I speak up. I just say, I know it feels that way, but, uh, you know, it's a team effort, you know, and these things are, and I, I make not angrily, but understanding that sometimes we are so focused on ourselves or um, feel that we need to discredit others in order to rise. And so I have learned to peacefully interject, you know, in moments where I'm like, um, you know, ways that set, bring it to light that it wasn't a solo effort, you know, but it just, and not being necessarily say attached to that um, thing that I need credit, but to bring it to light that it is not just you, you know, it's, right. but, and it's, you know, it doesn't have to be, I don't feel that you have to sit quietly and uh, suffer. <laughs> right? so well, the question but, is how you can be skillful. That is how you can represent what you want to represent mm -hmm. without um, a lot of anger and without blaming right. or blaming other people, right? Um, so there's, and it depends entirely on the situation. So, so much is, um, depends on what's at stake. It depends on how you're related to these people, how much you know them. Um, so, uh, so that's the skillful means part of it, which is a big part of Buddhist practice is discovering skillful means. Like the first thing we can do is notice my immediate reaction would be X. Is there any other possibility? Um, right. And so, um, so that's the work and it's, it doesn't have a right formulaic answer. It's really about this discovering like you did a skillful way to bring attention where, where you can. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I would make jokes too, like, you know, to lighten the, the moment. And huh? as people laugh, they just like, oh yeah, you know, and you just find a way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the skillful means part of it. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I think it, it's not about um, getting the credit for something because it's like I can do tons and tons and tons of stuff, and I don't care who. Nobody ever knows. And then it's it's when somebody steps forward and says, "I it, that was me," and it's that thing, isn't it? It's that where you're not no. bothered. You can do everything in the background, and everything's fine until somebody says. Oh, you know all that stuff that I did all that, and, it, and it's that, and it is. It's about, but it is. It's about having compassion for those, for, for everybody in that situation, because it all comes from pain, doesn't it? And like you said, a sense of scarcity. It's like yeah. that book, Scarcity, is brilliant, isn't it? And it talks about people having that lack of scarcity and 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 having to do things like that. And it's and I don't do anything with it, and and it's about I sit with it and I sit with the feelings myself. And I don't, so I don't have a reaction outwardly with it because I know it's mine. And, and it's almost like, it's kind of like we have to rewire all the conditioning beliefs and thoughts and experiences that led to me having that reaction in this way. And it's like what, you know, and, it, and it's kind of, and only through sitting have I been able to see that and, and you start to see it unraveling and all the wires start to kind of unwind. And then you start to see all the connections that have brought you to this very point of me having this reaction when somebody stands up and says, I did all that. I mean, absolutely fine doing everything. It's, it's really bizarre. It's like I can do loads and it's like, 
and I don't tell anybody. And then, then that one person misrepresents the situation. And that stems right back from childhood and, and even like a classroom situation where I was helping people on the table and got moved to the table below because I was seen to not be as clever as the others. Right. But they they were kind of, um, you know, dressed nicer and I was like scruffy. And so I was put on a on a lower That's table. If you know, and it's interesting, isn't it, how it, it it's all stems child, from something. Yeah, it's the child's sense of fairness. No, it, and I yeah. get that. Oh, sorry. It has I, to be fair. Yeah, but I yeah. get that. But I also feel that we are divine beings having a human experience, right? So in the human realm, there are things that you, we, we do to move and be human, right? We, we still have that, uh, the unfurling of the divine in the human experience. So it's like, if somebody is beating on me, I'm not gonna sit there and say, oh, well, you're angry and I see you as, do you understand what I mean? So we find ways to be human as divine beings. And as such, I, I understood what you had said initially, Maria, but I was just saying that we find ways, loving ways to still be human and bring to light, you know, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it in a kind way, like bring to light in a kind way that encompasses everybody and takes care of everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the investigation on that side, which is the side of the Pali Canon and the Theravadan teachings. Um, in Zen, our approach to investigation and inquiry is a little bit different. And, and, and as we um, began looking at this yet last week, um, the use of koans is one of the ways that we bring investigation and inquiry into Zen practice. So, and koans are used in two different ways, depending on the school of Zen that you're practicing. In the Rinzai tradition, there's a lot of energetic striving. You sit and you focus on that koan um, and you keep focusing on it. And you'll often see the teacher three times a day and they'll ring you out. Um, and you just, you just ultimately drive yourself towards some kind of breakthrough or breakdown or something. Um, and in the Soto school, the Zen stories are used in a little bit different way. <clears throat> They're not the object of striving, uh, but more um, the work of allowing the koan to work on you. So it may, um, it, as my teacher said, don't sit and concentrate on the koan, let it float through your awareness. You, you might be driving or washing the dishes or something um, and just let it move through you in a really, really natural way. So last week, we looked at um, case 12, Dijon planting the fields. Um, and uh, we thought about koans as a kind of concentration practice. Here, we're looking at it as investigation. So, uh, so we, you know, we would commit the case to memory and we'd return to it, but we'd be exploring what the case um, means and what it opens up for us, not in a strenuous or striving way, but just more um, uh, a kind of investigation or inquiry about it. What is it, what, this colon is showing up in my life now? What does this actually mean? So um, I'm going to post some other koans for you to explore on the website in the as uh, handouts. But I'm curious if anybody played with this koan and had some um, some discoveries or some explorations that they wanted to share from 
uh, booked from case 12. So I think last time I might have given you a little bit of the introduction um, from the Book of Serenity, right? Um, that that uh, um, this text is a classic text. There are several classic collections of koans, but this is the one we typically use in Soto Zen. Um, and Cleary says, this is a vehicle of ancient knowledge said to go back to time immemorial um, and to have been originally transmitted from mind to mind. Um, and so, uh, so this is, uh, um, was that little um, bit of introduction. And then we talked about the koan format in that book, which um, an introduction by Wan Song, and um, then the case itself, and then the commentary by Wan Song, is, uh, and then a verse by Tian Tong, and then a commentary by Wan Song on Tian Tong's verse. So that's the Book of Serenity. There's also the Gateless Barrier, which uh, we've been reading in depth and practice, uh, passing through the gateless barrier, um, the translation by Guo Gu, who's a contemporary Chinese teacher. So this um, uh, word for koan in the Chinese Chan tradition is gong on. Um, and um, I think um, I probably shared with you his, a little bit of his introduction last time to the gateless barrier, um, that they are, these collections are more than just books. Um, they're unique in the whole of Buddhism in all the history of human development. So, um, so this investigation, as he says, doesn't mean thinking. Thinking is dualistic and discriminatory and has the tendency to reify things as real and unchanging. So ordinary people's thinking is a form of self-grasping. Thinking is by nature self-referential. I think I shared this with you last time. So, uh, because it's self-referential and filtered through words and language, it reifies whatever people experience as out there, real, and separate. Being diluted by the thinking process, a sense of self and other come into being, and people are forever alienated from their experience. So he, as he says, thoughts aren't the problem. The problem is the tendency to take the concept of a thing to be the thing itself. So, um, and this is, you know, there's a very famous painting by Magritte, it's a painting of a pipe, which says, um, this is not a pipe on it. Um, and it's pointing to this, the concept is not the thing, the word is not the thing itself. So because of this delusion, attachment arises and suffering follows. So, um, so he's talking about uh, gongons are not puzzles or problems to be solved. You remember, um, there's nothing to solve. The stories defy logic and force the discriminating logical mind to become stuck, turning words, language, and concepts on their head, and thereby shattering self-grasping so practitioners can wake up to who they truly are. So it's a little bit of a different strategy than contemplating the five aggregates or the four noble truths. Um, the point isn't to solve them. You have to use the going on to dissolve your self-referentiality or any fixation. So um, in Bring Me the Rhinoceros, John Tarrant, it's just a wonderful book about koans. John Tarrant writes, <clears throat> when I tried to find out what koans are, it became clear that koan is a Japanese word that has entered the English language without bringing a clear sense of its meaning. It's usually taken to refer to a riddle 
or odd question. A koan actually has its origin in sayings or records of conversations between people interested in the secret of life. Koans originated when Chinese culture flowered about 1300 years ago at the period of the Arthurian legends in England. That's interesting to think about those things were happening at the same time. In China, it was the time of willow pattern ceramics, woodblock printing, great poets and painters, and just as in Europe, civil war. It was also a time when people grew seriously interested in the technology of the mind. Certain spiritual teachers became known for a deep and free understanding of life, and people came to learn, hoping to gain the insight that the teacher had. Some left farms, homes, and jobs in the bureaucracy to form monastic communities. Some traveled by foot. Those students worked, studied, meditated, and asked questions. Others maintained their work and family life and dropped in for periods of study. The teachers weren't trying to achieve something. They just responded to the needs of their students. And it turned out that some of their improvised decisions kept the pr process interesting. <clears throat> First of all, they trusted doubt and rewarded questions. This is rare in religion and an example of the Zen way of treating what is usually thought of as a problem, in this case, doubt, as a strength. The teachers also treated all questions as if they were relevant no matter what their content. Why did I lose my love would have the same spiritual value as what happens when I die? A question is a place of embarkation. I love this idea. And any question was treated as being about enlightenment whether the student was aware of it or not. There was a trust in whatever forces had brought the student to the point of asking. Finally, instead of giving kind advice or step-by-step -step instructions, the teachers responded to the students as if they were capable of coming to a complete understanding in that moment. A teacher's words often made no rational sense, yet possessed a strangely compelling quality. For example, someone had this interchange with a great teacher. I am Ching Shui, alone and destitute. Please help me. Kaoshan said, Mr. Shui, yes. Kaoshan said, you have already drunk three cups of the finest wine, and yet you say you haven't even wet your lips. <clears throat> of all the answers the student might have been hoping for, he probably wasn't expecting to be involved in a call and response and to be told that he was rich. Yet when you think you are desolate, it can be an intriguing and hopeful thing to be told that you are not. After such exchanges, a student that had been, who had been struck and unhappy, stuck and unhappy, might be suddenly full of joy. More often, the words would work away in the mind, gradually drawing the student out of the limiting view he or she held. Some exchanges became famous and were written down. They came to be known as koans. The word means public case. And there was a mania for collecting them. A well-known teacher forbade his students to write down what he said, because he thought people recording his comments as a substitute for the more necessary and dangerous task of letting them work on the mind. <clears throat> One man adapted by wearing paper clothing to lectures and the notes he jotted down secretly on his sleeves were passed around. These koans in turn became the core of one of the great koan collections, the Blue Cliff Record. Soldiers, housewives, farmers, and merchants used koans to find freedom, 
within the often difficult conditions of their times. The method was to immerse yourself in the saying and see how it changed you. This meant letting the koan teach you by interacting with your life and your mind. The activity wasn't confined to periods of formal meditation. People farmed the land, ran bureaucracies, and raised children, all the while keeping moment by moment company with their koan. In one instance, when Genghis Khan's troops swept through China in the 12th century, provincial governors went to the Khan and became senior ministers. They lived out in the steppes with him, hoping to persuade him to rule the cities rather than burning them and converting them into horse pastures. It would be hard not to feel unprepared for and perhaps terrified of such a task. And one of the ministers asked his teachers for advice. The most helpful thing the teacher could think of was to make a collection of koans and poems that he called the Book of Serenity. When this book arrived in the steps, the story goes, the ministers sat up together all night in the yurt reading the koans aloud. They had an impossible situation. So they all saturated themselves in a method that prepared them to take advantage of whatever tiniest possibility might indeed appear. Today is not so different from the way it was in China. People are called on to survive terror attacks and random mayhem. And even the most domestic life has its quota of desperation and insoluble problems and its requirement for unusual kindness. Today, people can find koans as helpful as they did long ago. <clears throat> so that's from John Tarrant's introduction. So I wanted to share for, with you uh, one koan that we have found um, very, very important for our particular sangha. It's case 19, uh, Ordinary Mind is the Way. Now this character for mind is also the character for heart. So you could say ordinary heart is the way. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read it that way, which is a little bit different from the way we traditionally read it. This is from um, the Gateless Gate uh, translation by Cohen Yamada. So here's the case. Joshu earnestly asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, the ordinary heart is the way. Joshu asked, should I direct myself toward it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Joshua asked, if I do not try to turn toward it, how can I know that it is the way? Nansen answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on a level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshu was suddenly enlightened. So that's the koan. So this is our question, right? This is, this is how do I know the way, right? How do I know where I'm going? How do I know what I'm doing here? What's our, my meditation practices about? <clears throat> and just to be told the ordinary heart or the ordinary mind is the way, well, what should I do? Should I turn towards it or not? Um, and then the idea that if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Well, wait a minute. If I don't try to turn toward it, how can I know it's the way? And then this is really the kicker. The way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. 
knowing is delusion. Now, I didn't know about you, but I spent most of my life trying to be the one who knows something, you know, like trying to know, um, like for once and for all, you know, like the grown-ups seem to know something when you were little and you think, I just want to be grown up and know. Um, they'd say things like, she should have known better. And you think, how would you know? So the adults must know something. So, uh, you know, I had a, a long, long uh, path in schooling. So I thought school is certainly the way where you, you learn to know things. And finally, I ended up in graduate school in a PhD program. And I thought, finally, I'm getting to the point where I can actually know something. But as it turns out, graduate school doesn't answer any of your questions. It does give you a better set of questions, but you're still not knowing. And, and you actually are more aware that you don't know anything. So, um, but not knowing is just a blank consciousness. It's just ignorance, right? So what is it? When you've really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you'll find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on a level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshi was suddenly enlightened. So when you think about, um, maybe you remember, you know, lying out on the grass and looking at the sky at night and the stars studying the sky. It's just vast. There isn't any right or wrong to it. There's all the stars, but what do you actually know about it? And on the other hand, in, the, in that experience, you know something. You just don't know it at a conceptual level. You know something about the connection between the earth and the sky and you. So here's Muman's commentary on this koan. He says, Nansen was asked a question by Joshu and Nansen's base was shattered and melted away. He could not justify himself. Even though Joshu has come to realization, he will have to delve into it for another 30 years before he can realize it fully. So in case you thought that, um, you know, sudden enlightenment would be the end of it for you, another 30 years is what you need. Um, so this is puzzling. Nansen was asked a question by Joshu and Nansen's base was shattered and melted away. He could not justify himself. So in other words, he doesn't give a lot of discursive reasoning, right? Um, even though Joshu has come to realization, he'll have to delve into it for another 30 years before he can realize it fully. So you notice that he doesn't say, even though Nansen brought jo Joshu to realization, because that's not what happens. He's come to realization. So that means there was uh, this kind of readiness in which almost anything could have tipped him into it. So here's the verse. The verse that, uh, that accompanies this koan is, the spring flowers, the moon in autumn, the cool breezes of summer, the winter's snow. If idle concerns do not cloud the mind, this is man's happiest season. So beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So I know we're at the end of our time, but if you have, if there's anyone who has any last uh, thoughts or reflections, um, that's a good koan to play with this week. I'll put up a few more and you can get the, the flavor of them. They're often quite cheeky and irreverent. So any last thoughts or reflections? As you're reading the koan, I thought of um, 
if anyone read the Tao of Pooh and how Pooh is that, I think for me, Pooh is that ordinary mind. He's just, and while we're trying to be owl and tigger and everything else, you know, Pooh is just like in wonder and in flow, you know? He doesn't challenge you about stuff. If you say the sky is blue, he's like, hmm, is it, you know? And he starts to look at it, you know, try to see it that way, even though he may say the sky is green. You know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. in flow. And is that um, what we would have thought like growing up, I thought who was the simple minded one, you know, but with new eyes and new mind, you realize he, mm -hmm. he really is the embodiment of that. That, um, that character um, that for ordinary, um, also means natural or everyday. Um, and I like that idea that it's just not messing with your mind. It's, your, it's a natural mind. It's a mind that isn't uh, um, full of conditioned reactivity and um, you know, stories and senses of who I am and who I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So it's that mind of a child that is uh, not yet contaminated. But you know, who was oh sorry. No, I was gonna say, but Pooh has been around and he's he doesn't take it in. You know what I mean? He's just like he's in flow, literally in flow, and it's really cool. But go ahead, Maria. I sorry, Jay. Yeah, I mean, but there's there's also that thing, isn't there? For me, I think for me, it's recognizing when it's about all of this and everything you you know and 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 kind of sitting when it's mine and for me to sit with. And when it's time for me to find my voice and yeah. it's a real i can have a bit of a struggle with that when it and you know i know a lot of things are mine and are just for me to to sit with and to work through and they'll pass and they'll and it's not for me to 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 put out anywhere and some and then it's that distinction isn't it between that and right now some action needs taking right and and fortunately for our lives um the opportunities the teachings and the opportunities to practice keep presenting themselves so, so we blow it this time and we're like, oh, that, yeah, that did not actually feel good or that did not really work out, you know, um, what, an, another opportunity is going to present itself. It'll be different, but, you know, we'll, this is the wonderful thing about viewing all of life as a training program. You're like, oh, what am I training in now? Oh, you know, I'm training in frustration or I'm, I'm training in how to meet humiliation or I'm training in how to deal with anger and so, so there's always a sense of, oh, I'm training in this. And, and perhaps, as with your, um, your niece, that training serves someone else. It's a, like a bank shot, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so next week, we're going to take up meta practice and loving kindness. Mm. So I, I think of this as distinct from either concentration practices or bare awareness practices. It's kind of a thing of its own. Um, so, so we'll take that up and, um, and also the practice with the Brahma Viharas. It's so, quite, I just wanted to say, Peg, as well, that it's just quite interesting that the emotions are always the same when we get triggered by certain things. Yeah. It's recognizing that same emotion, isn't it? And then it has the same sort of patterns of thoughts around each emotion has the patterns, yeah. these whole systems around, around e each one. And that's why the thought labeling is such a good um, practice because you get to see, 
oh, this again. Oh, and then it goes there. Oh, and then it goes there. And then it goes, why am I always the one? And then it goes there, you know, and you, and you're able to interrupt it as, um, you know, as the Buddha taught this way goes is unwholesome and painful. <laughs> this way is wholesome and not painful. Which way am I going to go? Well, it's that thing, isn't it? When it's familiar, like you said before, when it's familiar because it's like home, it's like going home that like, even Absolutely. though it's negative, it's like going home. Absolutely. It's so familiar, even though yeah. it's, you know, it's not yeah, I think um, I think the therapists talk about this as ego dystonic, right? And ego syntonic. So ego syntonic things are things that feel familiar inside, even if they're painful, you know, like um, and then um, ego dystonic are things. So so it may be that something joyful happens to you, but it's ego dystonic. It doesn't fit your picture of yourself. It doesn't pick, this is why so many people reach a high level of somehow crash and burn, right? <laughs> because it's not uh, egocentric for them. Um, so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's another whole, that's another large talk. We won't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> now have a wonderful week and I will see you next week. And we'll talk a little bit about this practice of loving kindness. Oh, thank you, Peg. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.